that day on April 26, when it seemed that fate played tricks, a deed never before was seen on the green hills of the Dean. Beware of angry glares. Never ask who killed the bears. That was the late Ken Sollers in 2019 reading his poem, 1889, Who Killed the Bears? Ken's poem goes on to describe an event that took place here in the Forest of Dean back in 1889. And it's an event that has reverberated through forest literature, history and popular culture ever since. There have been poems, books and a television play, film shorts, animations and radio drama. A BBC TV coup came to the Forest of Dean to cover this story in the 1960s and in 2013, Radio 4's Punt PI programme investigated. Ken Sollers wrote his poem in 1989 as the village where it all happened marked the centenary. The same village today that remembers the event in the name of its general store. The shop is called The Bear Necessities. The full story of what happened on that spring day in 1889 is, in some respects, as straightforward as it is grim. An act of violence that saw four Frenchmen beaten up and their two performing bears killed. But whilst that event is remembered to this day, Worst crimes of the period, such as the brutal killing of two police officers in the Forest of Dean, have long since been forgotten. So why, 130 years on, are we still talking about the killing of the bears? The Reading the Forest podcast. The stories behind the stories. Episode 2. Six-Fingered Jack, the French General, and don't mention the bears. I'm Dr Roger Deeks. I'm Dr Jason Griffiths. And in this podcast series we're looking into the stories behind some of the best-loved and most enduring tales told about the Forest of Dean over the past 400 years. We're exploring poems, novels, children's fiction, history books and dramas anything written in or about the Forest of Dean. And we're trying to find out how and when some of the most persistent stories about the forest began. In the second episode, we're looking into probably one of the most well-known and notorious stories about the Forest of Dean, the story of the killing of the bears. We'll be exploring work by some of the most well-known Forest of Dean poets and authors that have helped keep this story alive for well over a century. We'll be finding out in which forest village it's considered very unwise to ask who killed the bears. And why the name The Bear Killers is still used, even today, to mock people from the Forest of Dean. This really is a story about stories, how they get told and retold, and who is doing the telling. We'll be looking at work by Leonard Clark, Harry Beddington, John Moore, Dennis Potter and Joyce Latham, and the first and perhaps the most evocative poem ever written on the subject, Warning, written and performed by F.W. Harvey. We're also going to be following the story all the way back to 1889 and the very first news reports that arguably shaped the story for the next hundred years. I'll be looking into why this provincial crime became national news. How was the killing of two bears in the Forest of Dean connected to a French general and who on earth was Six-Fingered Jack? Let's get started. First, how much do we know about what actually happened on that momentous day back in 1889? Part 1. The Killing of the Bears We owe a great deal of what we know about what happened on that day to a book published in 1964, which was the first factual review of events that happened 75 years before. It's called, simply enough, Who Killed the Bears and was written by poet and author Leonard Clark. Leonard Clark, 1905-1981. to Poet, author and literary editor. Born on Guernsey, he was adopted as a baby and grew up in Cinderford in the Forest of Dean. As a youngster, he became friends with the Gloucestershire poet F.W. Harvey, who encouraged and mentored him as he began to write his own poetry. Becoming a pupil teacher... Clark moved away to complete his training and begin his career in education. 
He would go on to become a school's inspector, a successful poet, author, biographer and editor of poetry collections. He also advised the government on poetry and education and was awarded an OBE. Clark wrote on a wide range of subjects, but his memoirs and many of his poems often look back to the people and places of his childhood in the Forest of Dean. As the 75th anniversary of the killing of the bears approached, local publisher Forest of Dean Newspapers Limited encouraged him to write a book about it. Clark's small book, It's Only Nine Pages, drew on testimony given at the resulting trial and on the memories of someone who was actually there the day the bears were killed. Mark Westaway, who was a child at the time of the bear killings, was still alive, just a few years before Clark wrote his book. Mr Westaway remembered the men and their bears in the village of Ruardeen that morning and their terrified return later the same day. Leonard Clark describes how four Frenchmen, Gabriel Yes, Thomas Sergent, Gabriel Hugeau and Alfred Durand, and their two performing bears were touring the Forest of Dean stopping wherever they could gather a crowd and earn a few pennies. On the morning of 26th of April, they were in Ruardeen, but looking for a bigger audience, they set off for the nearby town of Cinderford. Now, Ruardeen was a small, ancient village in the forest. In contrast, Cinderford was a sprawling industrial town that had recently mushroomed on the back of the iron industry and jobs in coal mining. All went well for the Frenchmen and their bears in Cinderford, but with their performance done, as they turned to leave, they were joined by an angry crowd. A false rumour that the bears had mauled a woman and killed a child had, for some reason, begun to circulate. And quickly, things turned ugly. Prompted by the rumour, the crowd began to attack the men and their bears. On the outskirts of the town, people picked up stones off the road, sticks, anything they could find to use in the attack. The size of the crowd and their ferocity increased as the Frenchmen, now in fear for their lives, desperately tried to escape back in the direction of Ruardine. Clark writes that Sir Jean and Gironde managed to escape into nearby woods, where Gironde remained terrified right through the night. He says that Huget and Yass made it back to Ruardine, where eventually they were given shelter. Meanwhile, the two bears had broken loose. One was killed by the attackers on the road into Ruardine. The other was put out of its misery, shot near a farm on the far side of the village. Eventually, a policeman was informed. Charges were brought and a court case followed in which several men were found guilty of the attack, most of them choosing to pay fines rather than face time in jail. Since Clark wrote his book, a lot more has come to light about the events of that day. And arguments continue about whether those who were brought to trial were really the ones responsible for what happened. There's been some speculation that they were scapegoats, put on trial for a crime committed by a much larger group of people who couldn't all be identified. We'll look in more detail at the immediate aftermath of that day in the Forest of Dean and the writing that followed in a moment. First, though, what do we know about the victims of the attack, the four Frenchmen and their bears? Now, Roger, you've been finding out about the tradition of dancing bears, how they were trained and where they and their trainers came from. That's an interesting question. And their origins were remarkably different because the Frenchmen came from the Pyrenees, close to the Spanish border, and the bears, Russia. OK, that's intriguing. Men from France, bears from Russia. How did that work? Well, the Frenchmen came from a few villages high in the Pyrenees and they had learned many years before that they could make a living from the bears that lived in the mountains around them. They would kill mother bears and capture young bears. Not the way to treat bears, but... These were different times, I know. This was a long time ago, but I'm not sure I like these Frenchmen. Mm, you're going to like them even less when I tell you how they trained the bears, and it wasn't like Strictly. They conditioned bears to jump and hop at the sound of music by beating their feet or standing them on red-hot coals. So the bears were terrified into dancing at the prompt of a flute or instrument. You said the bears came from Russia. How how was that? How did that come about? Well, if we go back to the way in which they sourced young bears, you can see there's a problem. Bear dancing was a lucrative business in the 19th century, and eventually the population of bears in the Pyrenees dropped almost to extinction. The bear trainers started to import bears from the nearest source, Russia. 
So the bears came from Russia via the Pyrenees and France all the way to Ruridim to get beaten to death. I am starting to feel the bears in this story had a very bad deal. And in general, the mood in Britain had moved towards preventing cruelty to animals and improving their welfare. The RSPCA had been formed and pressed for legislation. And although dancing bears were not outlawed until 1911, there were several prosecutions of bear handlers and their troops for cruelty and neglect. Black Beauty by Anna Sewell was published in 1877. And this is just 10 years or so before the bears were killed. And that was a very popular book. It was a moving evocation of a horse's life in Victorian Britain. And it prompted demands for improved animal welfare. Now, with that in mind, then, what I don't understand is why the bear handlers, the Frenchmen, got such a sympathetic hearing in the newspapers at the time. And they were supported by the local dignitaries in the forest, who went on and contacted the nearest French consulate on their behalf, and even helped organise a fund so the Frenchmen could buy new bears. What was going on? General Boulanger. Part 2. The French General. General George Boulanger. If you'd been around in 1889, Jason, you would have known who General Boulanger was, a sort of French Donald Trump. He'd risen to be a popular public figure on the basis of his achievements as a soldier and a nationalist, drawing support from rural traditionalists, French Catholics and royalists. He promoted an idea known as revanchism, opposing Germany and seeking revenge for the humiliation France had suffered in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. He stirred up a lot of nationalism and was on the point of becoming a dictator in 1889. Boulanger had tons of charisma, but was inconsistent and prone to tantrums. Sounds familiar. Well, in the elections of January 1889, he was on the threshold of power after he was elected as a Paris deputy. He could have seized control of France as his very right-wing populist supporters wanted him to, but decided to wait until the next election in September. Then, the traditionalists got to work, started investigating him and his dodgy supporters, and he panicked. The parallels with Donald Trump are striking. Yes, and as a result of the investigations into his supporters, he flounced himself into self-imposed exile, not in Florida, but here in Britain. And we loved him. He hated the Germans, who we didn't like, as they were threatening our empire and dominance at sea, a tension that would eventually lead to war. And Boulanger liked us, he liked Britain, so we liked Boulanger a lot. We loved him. We wanted him to win. And he arrived on our shores at the beginning of April 1889. Ah, that date. So, a couple of weeks after he arrived, we were beating up Frenchmen in the Forest of Dean. Jason, you've got it. In our long love-hate relationship with the French, this was the moment when we loved them more than ever before. So when our story appeared in the papers... The murder of two bears was nothing compared to a roughing up of some very precious Frenchmen. That was a terrible crime. Murdering policemen and other forest villainy at the time was nothing compared to this act of barbarism towards our French cousins. So the foresters were in the bad books and the poor Frenchmen, who otherwise might just be regarded as everyday travellers and hawkers, got a massive rush of attention and sympathy, all well publicised in the press. Let's hear how the Cheltenham Chronicle reported the incident and its aftermath. The attack upon the unfortunate Frenchmen and their dancing bears in the Forest of Dean is a disgrace to Gloucestershire and to England. It recalls the time when England was so held by insular prejudices that it was not the asylum of the prescribed and not the land on which today the whole world looks upon as an asylum. Luckily, General Boulanger is in London and the Frenchmen are busy celebrating their republic and opening their exhibition. Otherwise, the harrying of these luckless foreigners by the savages of Dean Forest might have gravely complicated international relations. The French consuls at Gloucester and Cardiff took up the prosecution, and we are glad to think that the ringleaders in the outrage have been heavily fined. But that does not compensate the poor Frenchmen for the loss of their bears. Mr Colchester Weems has, however, opened a fund for their assistance, which we hope to see find ample support. If the story was so embarrassing to the government, why make such a fuss? Well, newspaper stories are rarely just facts. They serve a purpose. 
and this one served several purposes, as we shall see. But what about Boulanger? Well, he was barred from standing for election. His party was defeated in the French autumn elections in 1889. He had a complicated personal life, and in 1890, his mistress died. A powerful influence, and the following year, he went to a grave in Brussels, and standing over it, shot himself in the head. His reputation and political movement had by then collapsed, and he has since disappeared from popular memory. He's disappeared, but the bear story certainly hasn't. Definitely not. That's persisted. And of course, the three nationalities involved in our story, the British, French and Russians, by virtue of the bears, were soon to become allies and form the Entente that went to war together in 1914. But that's got nothing to do with the killing of the bears. At least we think not. The Reading the Forest podcast. The stories behind the stories. Although bear dancing was becoming less popular, bear troops and their handlers were still common sights in rural areas. 1889 wasn't the first time the Frenchmen and their performing bears had visited the Forest of Dean. I've been speaking to Ruadeen resident Andrew Gardner, who's been fascinated by this story for many years. They were well, well established, you know, in 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 the old area, not only in Gloucestershire. They had a circuit that extended out into Herefordshire, got places like the Dancing Green. Uh, they certainly caught a dimmer. I had quite a bit of correspondence with the elderly lady, Mrs. Duffield, at the Dimmock, whose father kept the crown. They had uh, facilities for keeping the bears when the Frenchmen used to stay there. They went into Newen for the, the different fairs and they went into Gloucester for the goose fair, the old goose fairs. They had a circuit which, uh, when they entered into the forest, a lot of the, the visits were made to the some of the mines in the mining communities, some of the areas where they visited was places like Nelson Green, which is um, part of Barley, and it would become the, the normal practice, something everyone looked forward to. As Andrew points out, though, that was all to change on the 26th of April, 1889. And suddenly you got this dramatic change. Instead of the bears coming into Rurdine and expected to arrive at a certain day, you had a great mob descend on Rurdine. The outcome, or we call it repercussion, I don't, I don't know how you phrase it, but I think really speaking, the thing about the order of the bears changed from an established cultural part of a forest way of life to a, to a to an absolute shame. Andrew Gardner talked about the sense of shame felt in the Forest of Dean over the killing of the bears and the attack on the Frenchmen all those years ago. I remember as a teenager, this would have been in the mid-1980s, going to the Malt Shovel pub in Ruardine. I was with some friends from the village and one of them said, whatever you do, don't mention the bears. And then he told me the story, warning me that asking who killed the bears in Ruardine was as good as asking for a fight. Thinking he's pulling my leg, later on I shouted out in the pub, who killed the bears? Now luckily for me it was a quiet night and there was no one in who wanted to pick a fight. Even so, the landlady had enough and told me, you're barred, from now on you're not welcome in my pub. Well, that's a marvellous insight into Jason's youth. This question of who killed the bears has become part of forest folklore and has been seen as a particularly sensitive one for the residents of Ruadine. Writing in 1964, Leonard Clark said that when he was growing up, Ruadine was a village under a cloud and that the story of the bears was something you just did not mention in Ruadine if you valued your skin. The feeling was that Ruadine had been blamed for a crime that, by rights, should have been laid at the door of Cinderford. After all, that's where the attack on the Frenchmen and their bears had started. As a result, the people of Rudin were, as it was said, so touchy about the topic of the bears that merely asking the question, who killed the bears, was enough to provoke a fight. Some of this was also about local rivalries too, the sort of thing that might surface as a, a local brass band contest or inter-village rugby match. Each village and town in the forest could have a, a fierce sense of its own very localised identity. In this case is Ruadine, 
an old rural forest village with a history dating back to the Doomsday Book and Cinderford, the brash industrial upstart town. And one of them knew all too well how to wind up the other. This was also, though, a story that was known around the entire Forest of Dean, not just in Ruridine and Cinderford. It became incorporated into local stories and folklore, talked about in pubs, social clubs and at work. And the very first interpretation of all of this came from a person with an acute ear for a good story and forest voices, who also liked to drink in the local pub and had a well-tuned sense of humour. And that writer was F. W. Harvey. Forty years after the event, he wrote a poem, and it was a poem that he would later read on the radio as part of his BBC series all about the Forest of Dean. Francis William Harvey, 1888-1957. Growing up at Minsterworth, a farming community between Gloucester and the Forest of Dean, he developed a profound love of the Gloucestershire countryside. Awarded a medal for conspicuous gallantry, he was to spend much of the remainder of the war in a German prisoner of war camp, during which time he wrote one of his most popular poems, Ducks. In the 1920s he moved to the Forest of Dean where he worked as a solicitor, continued to write and became a much-loved and respected local figure. Now, Roger, you're a huge admirer of Harvey and you were one of the founding members of the F.W. Harvey Society. How important do you think is Harvey as a literary figure? He's a massive figure. During after the First World War, he was a major national literary figure and later a broadcaster. He was a towering influence over forest literature. He was an accomplished mimic and he loved listening to voices. The rhythm, cadence of how stories are told and he took those stories and importantly the dialect and put them on the written page. Now he wrote what we understand to be the very first poem that featured the bear stories and... Let's be honest, Roger, we both think it's a masterpiece of Forrester Dean literature. Tell us about Warning. He wrote Warning for a small collection of his poems in Pillowell Woods and Other Poems, published in 1926 for a local audience. But ten years later, in 1935, he was producing and presenting a radio programme called My Friends the Foresters for the BBC in the West, and he took the opportunity to include his poem. Warning is a beautifully rhythmic poem full of quips about forest names, places and people. And for the denouement, he features the bears, Ruadine, and how a disastrous question can lead to a tragic end. So here is Will Harvey, F.W. Harvey himself, reading his poem, Warning. Warning to visitors. A man there was, a gentle soul of mild inquiring mind, who come into this neighborhood, it's wonders for to find. He sought for vines on Viney Hill. He wondered much to find the dry brook were reverse of dry. It so perplexed his mind, as every man him chanced to meet, he'd stopped to question and was answered courteously and fairly by all within this land. They told him who had put the lid on Lydney, who the ale misspelt in Aylverton, and him delighted in the tale. And still, like little Oliver, him softly asked for more, and with the utmost courtesy were answered as before. Until one sleepy summer's eve, him come all unaware unto a place called Ruardine, and asked, Who killed the bear? Then men arose and knocked him flat, another punched his yud, and when the rest had done with him, our gentle friend were Judd. The moral of this simple tale be plain. Dear friends, beware, if you should visit Ruardine, mention of any bear. If you should climb to Yarkley's lad, pause not to question why they put a pig upon a wall to see the band go by. And if your vit so far should stray as Dimmock, lest some art befall ye, make no mention of a man without the shirt. Nine lives have cats, and you but one. Risk not that gift of God. Tis better to be ignorant 
than Judd beneath the sod. Now, Roger, I appreciate we might be biased because we both think it's brilliant, but I, I just wonder, I mean, it is a fantastic poem. Why do you think it's not been more widely appreciated? Well, it, simply because outside of the forest, the nuances of it just couldn't be appreciated. It's grounded in the forest folklore of that period. Everybody remembers the bears, but there's a very interesting reference to the man buried without a shirt. And that's to do with a grudge between villages in the forest and Dimmock, because that was where a man from the forest went and he was so miserable and unhappy because of his circumstances, he hung himself and he was buried. And rumour had it that the people there buried him without a shirt on his back. And this was a terrible crime, an insult to a forester. And that was held as a deep grudge for a long time, in the same way as the story of the bears represented a grudge between two forest villages, but it's long forgotten. And there's another story in there which I particularly like, which is about the pig on the wall, watching the band go by, and that's something that's been picked up in later years by another very favourite Forrester Dean poet, Keith Morgan, who also wrote about it. So it is about the, these forest stories that continue to circulate, but uh, as, we, as we're sort of saying, none of them are quite have the strength uh, of the bear story, which keeps resurfacing down the years. Well, that's right. And the oral memory for some of these stories has faded. For instance, the, the, the pig on the wall, the, there's regularly the dispute about where that wall was. Was that a wall in Yorkley? Was that a wall in Bream? Was that a wall in Pillowell? Because there's lots of stories about the ownership of that wall and the pig and where it sat. But now the proper basis of it, the place where it actually was, has long gone. But does it matter? I guess it doesn't really. It's a great story, isn't it? Okay, so lots of local stories, and for us, absolutely fascinating. But for his audience then, what was he he using this poem for in the setting of that programme? What what work was he getting it to do? Well, he was really keen to make people aware of just what a fabulous place the Forest of Dean uh, was and is. He was very keen for the radio to broadcast ordinary people's voices, but particularly dialect and accent. And of course, this poem lends itself to both the folklore of the forest and the dialect of the forest. So it was a perfect example for him to use to talk about the riches of the forest and the traditions of the people who live here. Move on 20 years and another local poet, author and humorist who reveled in the forest dialect and folklore, Harry Beddington, wrote all about the bears in his comic poem, Who Killed the Bears, published in 1961 in his book, Forest of Dean Humour. And at an event we held in 2019, marking 130 years since the killing of the bears, Ruardeen Mayor Neil Jones read an extract from Harry Beddington's poem. In the first part of the poem, Harry outlines the dreadful events of 1889. He's heard it's still a particularly sore topic in Ruardeen, so Harry tells us he went to the village to find out if that's true. Here's Mayor Neil Jones reading the part where Harry describes what happened next. I dropped into the public bar, oh thick place there the bow. About dozen chaps were drinking there, as near as I could tell. I zized them up, both one and all, and thought they all looked a bit rough. They weren't near near as big as I, though. They didn't look that tough. I got me back against the wall and turned and faced their stairs. Then getting ready for some fun, I axed, who killed the bears? For half a minute, time stood still. They looked at each one. I started to let out a laugh, and then the fun begun. I'd have said some fights when I was young, cause I be forest barn, but when I think what happened there, I find my blood run warm. I spread me vet and clenched me teeth and laid around a plenty. Before each one I got in, I gathered back twenty. This lasted for a goodish bit, it seemed like an hour or more, and never have I been so glad to come back through thick door. Tis true they opened in Voroi, and I come drew yud vust. And then they stood and looked at I as I rolled in the dust. They licked and watched I quiet as I scrambled to me vet. And one of them tossed me me hat and another my top death. 
I went back where my wiser man and paid for all me vern. I never stopped to look behind, nor never went there again. Well, that were many years ago, and they say the same to be done. They say it didn't like that there now, but that's as maybe, son. If thou bis ever up thick road, and veer like thou some vern, thou exum, who twas killed the bears? But mister, take thee gun. We've just been listening to Ruardine Mayor Neil Jones reading from Harry Beddington's poem, Who Killed the Bears? This poem takes a very different approach to the bear story than the one taken by Leonard Clark in his book. It's humorous for a start and also is written in forest dialect. Harry Beddington was a master of dialect poetry, something he perfected as a performer. Not only that, but he wrote prose and drama in dialect too. In 1944, his comedy, Footing the Bill, written entirely in forest dialect, won Best Drama Prize in the County Music and Drama Festival. Harry Beddington was also a regular local newspaper correspondent. His ear, like Harvey's, was well-tuned to local voices and local stories. Harry Beddington's poem on the bears is all about the legendary power of the question, who killed the bears? And what, supposedly, happens if you ask it in Ruadine? Harry wonders, how bad can it be? Bravely, or maybe foolishly, he goes to find out, so we don't have to. Now, I think his poem is really aimed at a local audience. There's a shared humour, not about the awful events of 1889, but about the local rivalry over who was to blame, and the fact that this local village will, in a sense, stick up for itself refusing to take the blame from its neighbour. And what this poem shows too is that by now the story and the question has reached another level of impact that could still provoke a fight but also a good laugh. Both Harry Beddington and Leonard Clark were actually from Cinderford but where Beddington remained in the town nearly all of his life Clark had long since moved away when he wrote his book in 1964. Deeply involved in the life of the local community, it was Harry Beddington, perhaps, who could afford to treat the whole topic with some humour, focusing on that legendary local rivalry. In contrast, Clark said that he wanted to set the historical record straight, writing that he aimed to clear those men of Victorian Ruadine. And on the final page of his book, he wrote that Ruadine comes well out of the story. It was the township of Cinderford which produced the men responsible for killing the bears. Now, recent research suggests that the picture was in reality a little more complex, with at least some of the men who were prosecuted coming from the Ruardine Hill area, close to Ruardine itself, but a separate settlement. Local figure and Ruardine resident Andrew Gardner shares Clark's view that Ruardine, in fact, is not the community to blame. As Andrew explains, he has a family connection to the events too. There was two pike, two pike houses very close to Ruardine. One was at Ragman Slade and one was in the, on the east side of the village. Um, a person who lived in the pike house was my great-grandfather, Tom Mason, and his daughter, uh, uh, Edie, uh, Aunt Edie. I just remember a, a, an Asian Aunt Edie and she, uh, she watched the old scene from her bedroom window. And the crowd couldn't get past the pike house because there was like a, a pole across. The, um, by the time the ore had come, they'd, they'd beaten the, the little bear quite savagely. And that bear actually died or was killed and battered alongside the pike house. The larger of the bears carried on through the village. They fetched... Uh, a gentleman who was a gamekeeper, Tom Bond, and he'd come in and shot the shot. There. Then the bears were collected and taken by the police and into Drybrook Dry Police Station. In fact, uh, Tom Mason, I call, I'll, I'll call him Tom Mason, he was my great-great-grandfather. Uh, he lived in the Pike House, and obviously when the mob couldn't advance beyond the the poor, two of the French took refuge in the Pike House. He also went down to the vicarage and I think it was Manly Power. One of the priests come out who could speak French 
and he, he brought a little bit of, you know, calm to the whole situation. I, I think the, the rector played a leading part in conjunction with old Tom Mason. They calmed the situation dramatically. And in fact, I think they also sent somebody for Tom Bond to shoot the other. And they also called the police at that particular moment in time. Certainly on the part of um, Birding Village, who played so little part, and yet you had uh, you had other parts of the of the Forest of Dean that um, were only too pleased to blame it on to Erdine because that was the actual site where they were killed. But in actual fact, the mob certainly didn't originate from Erdine. Harry Beddington and Leonard Clark, growing up in Cinderford in the 1920s would have heard about the story from older relatives and neighbours. And Will Harvey, F.W. Harvey, was also a big influence on both of them too. The poem, Warning, may well have provided the spark of inspiration all those years later for Leonard Clark to write his book. Remember, Harvey was a friend and mentor to Clark, and Harry Beddington to write his poem. We know that Clark and Beddington corresponded with each other too, so perhaps Harry's poem contributed to Leonard wanting to set the record straight. To what extent Clark and Beddington were directly inspired by warning, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that first F.W. Harvey, then Harry Beddington, and then Leonard Clark each contributed in their own way to keeping the story of the bears and the power of that infamous question very much alive in the local imagination. As you've heard, the whole question of who killed the bears was one that had become closely associated with Ruardeen. But if there's one thing that might guarantee any inter-village rivalry might be very quickly forgotten, it was people from outside of the Forest of Dean using the blanket term bear killers to insult or abuse a forester. Here's an example of someone who remembers being called that very name. Glenda Griffiths, raised in Broadwell, moved to Gloucester just as she was finishing her secondary education in the 1950s. I got go to school for one year. At Gloucester? Yeah, just down the road. Right. Just What's down that the school called? Derby Road School. Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a very good time for the first few weeks, you know. And they'd never heard of Broadwell. Oh, the only thing they knew of Broadwell, who killed the bear? And I didn't know anything about who killed the bear. That's all they wanted to know. So that was even though you were from Broadwell, that yeah, was what they... Yeah. Well, they didn't know, they'd never heard of Broadwell. They didn't were know they anything about Were they taunting you with that or was that a genuine they, they, question? They, they, they was taunting me a bit about it. But anyway, and so then... On that, yeah. did, did you get teased because you were from the forest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was quite happy to leave that school. Now we can see from that story that the term was a provocation and that it was well known to school children outside the forest, a taunt that was used to exclude and humiliate. The story of the killing of the bears lent itself very nicely to a negative depiction of the forest and a portrayal of frightening and savage foresters. And just a few years after F.W. Harvey's poem Warning, another national literary figure would incorporate the story into his depiction of the forest. That writer was John Moore. John Moore, 1907 to 1967. Prolific author, poet and conservationist. Born in Tewkesbury, he became best known for his Brensham trilogy about a rural Gloucestershire family closely based on his own. After World War II, he established the Cheltenham Festival of Literature, an annual event of international renown that still runs to this day. In the spring of 1933, John Moore set out on a walking trip along the English-Welsh border, a region known as the Welsh Marches, and that was the title of the book he published that same year as an account of his journey. Setting off from Gloucester, he headed first for the Forest of Dean, and on the way called in for a drink at a pub on the edge of the forest. And where might you be going, sir, if I might take the liberty? Well, I'm beginning in the Forest of Dean. Oh, that's a bad place. A bad place, sir, with bad people. They're rough and wild and uncivilised. I wouldn't recommend the gentleman to go walking in the forest, would you, Bob? There are nicer places, that's certain. Oh, there's a lot of lunacy there in the forest. 
Not as bad as they used to be, always fighting and doing dreadful things. They're quieter now. All the same. I shouldn't mention bears if you go to Rurdeen. Not unless you want trouble. Tell me about it. Ask him in Rurdeen and see what happens. Don't you do it, sir. He's pulling your leg. Oh, for shame, Bob. Once John Moore's in the forest proper, he hears the bear story from a Cinderford pub landlord. Moore writes that there was one bear and one Frenchman, and that the people of Ruardeen were definitely responsible for what happened. Moore writes about how one evening he falls in with a group of miners drinking in a pub just outside Cinderford. Leaving the pub, Moore decides to accompany them as they head home to Ruardeen. A little worse for wear, he decides to ask the question, who killed the bears, with very predictable results. He quickly legs it, rather than face the eruption of anger amongst the men. In Gloucestershire archives is a letter Moore wrote to a friend just a few days later, and in it he said, I like the foresters. Even so, his chapter on the Forester Dean in his book draws on many old ideas about it as a dark and troublesome place. He writes that as he was leaving the area, crossing into the Wye Valley in Wales, I had a sense of coming out of darkness into light. Moore returned to the bear story and some of these characterizations of the forest 20 years later in his novel White Sparrow. Here again, the forest is described as dark, shadowy, with trees closing over and ready to pounce. The protagonist of that story, Tommy, at one point ends up in a Ruardeen pub and asks that question about the bears, again with predictable results. As well as using the bear story, Moore's picture of the forest as a dark and shadowy place tapped into some long-standing ideas that saw the Forest of Dean as a dark, uncivilised and backward place. Now, to be fair to John Moore, he wasn't the first to write about the Forest of Dean in this way. These ideas can actually be traced back to the very earliest literary descriptions of the forest. In the 1500s, it was written about as a dark and terrible place, its people barbarous and wild. Now, in some respects, these were just generic ideas about forests in general, that they were wilderness, untamed regions of the country, devoid of the civilised people and culture, to be found only in the city. In a moment, we'll see how some of these ideas were still current, even in the 1880s, and how they resurfaced in the newspaper reports about the killing of the bears. First, though, what was the Forest of Dean really like at the time of the bear killings? Was it a dark and uncivilised rural backwater cut off from the rest of modern society and urban civilization? In the Forest of Dean, there's a great place to go to find out. The Dean Heritage Centre at Sudley between Cinderford and Blakeney. I went down there to see Head of Collections Nicola Wynne and I started by asking her how different was the Forest of Dean then, in the 1880s, to how it is now. Would we recognise it? Hello, all right. I think you'd recognise it easily. The major towns and villages were here. The road where major roads were established. There was a mineral railway line established as well. When you look at lots of our photographs from our archive, we've got some here in front of us, you'll notice on the horizons, on the hills, you'll see lots of slag heaps, you'll see lots of waste ground, you'll see a much more open looking forest, um, still trees obviously, still managing for timber, but um, less sylvan looking generally. And of course there would have been lots of industrial looking buildings, chimneys, smoke in the air. What were some of the, the big industries in the Forest of Dean in the, in the 1880s at the time of the, the bear killing? Coal was the main, main industry really by the 1880s, 1890s. Approximately half the men in the forest probably would have worked in a colliery. But that's more complicated than it sounds because there were lots and lots of different jobs in a colliery. So men weren't necessarily all hewing coal. So there were lots of jobs. You could have been 
blacksmith, you could have making the timber props, you could be running the machinery, you could be ripping roads, you could be overseeing the cage for the men going up and down, you know, loading loading the wagons, offloading the wagons. So there were lots of different jobs within a colliery. So it was a big site, you know, lots of different buildings, lots of men, hundreds of men. There's lots of other jobs in the Forest of Dean. So, of course, looking at forest resources, you've also got stone, so lots of quarrying, lots of stonemasons working the stone. Um, you've got forestry work, of course, so you've got men filling trees for timber. There's also charcoal burning and bark stripping for tanning. Um, there's other jobs as well. Um, haulage seemed to come come out quite strongly in the reading I've done also working on the railway lines and obviously there were people working in shops and other trades as well you mentioned working in in shops but the forest would have had banks and would have required clerks and so those more what we might say sort of lower middle class jobs were also in the area so in terms of um, a kind of class identity or a class makeup would it have been quite mixed i think the forest of dean was largely working class there would have been a few middle class families because of course there were colliery owners there were owners of the shops owners of the haulage or horse and cart businesses but mostly working class people what about the women in the forest what sort of what do we know about the sort of work and the sort of lives that they had in the 1880s domestic work was really common so typically the daughters of the household aged around 14 would go off to Cheltenham or Gloucester or Monmouth or Hereford or big rich houses in the Forest of Dean and carry out domestic work there. Here we've got Timothy Mountjoy's book this is a modern facsimile but he published a book in 1887, which he called 62 Years in the Life of a Forest of Dean Collier. Yeah, I found the, the bit on women really interesting because it's so little written about in the Forest of Dean. And in here he talks about women carrying out bark stripping. Another thing I found interesting was that he says they go into the woods to cut the fern, which they burn and make into lye, to put into the hard water for washing clothes and the clothes of the aristocracy. And they could make it into bowl, balls and they could sell it in the shops. So I think you've got some, some interesting little snippets about what women used to, used to do and not, you know, not just domestic work. How connected do you think the Forest of Dean was in around this period of the 1880s? Were... Were we an isolated place, cut off, a strange, mysterious place cut off from the world? Or, or did we, you know, were we perhaps more connected than we might think? I think we were more connected than we might think. And I think the claims to Forest of Dean, isolation and being a backwater has been exaggerated. I think it's quite complex and I think it changes over time. But I think by the 1880s, the Forest of Dean had been a major industrial centre for hundreds of years, certainly to do with iron. There were lots of resources that were well known and exported out of the forest. So you've got iron, coal and timber and stone. We were connected to the outside world by other means, not just uh, physical transport, but there were many newspapers about. And I think there's rising literacy um, you think Thomas Hale's diary is from the 1880s and he's, he's just an iron miner but he writes his diary really, really well and I was impressed by how, how well informed he is. You know, it's, he's writing about um, all sorts of topics. So he's writing about national events, a national wedding, he's writing about the war in Egypt, he's writing about local events, he's writing about a strike in Yorkshire... He writes about all sorts of topics, so I think people were quite well informed as well. You know, there were local newspapers, there were national newspapers. Um, the schools had been established, the children were going to school at this date. So I think with rising literacy, I think that people were more well informed than perhaps we think they are. 
Nicola explained how a few years ago a local family discovered some old diaries in their attic. When Derek Smith and Marilyn Naylor realised quite how old these diaries were, they donated them to the Dean Heritage Centre, and Head of Collections Nicola has been studying them. The diaries were written by a local iron miner, Thomas Hale, during the 1880s and 1890s, and they include entries for 1889, the year the bears were killed. Yeah, he, he writes every day, or almost every day, for 1889. And if you look at the entry for April that year, and you can see here, right at the end, he writes a few lines about killing the bears. He, there's actually an entry about the bears then. Okay. Yep, yep. Amazing. What, what does he actually say, Nicola? Do you want me to read it out? Yeah. I find it interesting because when you, when you, when you look at the whole page... There's about three quarters of the page on the weather and about four lines on killing the bears. So it shows you his priorities. Because, <laughs> of course, the weather was massively important to a man who grew vegetables in his garden and walked everywhere, walked miles to work every day and back again. But anyway, the entry on the killing the bears reads, George Wilkes and the others killed two travelling bears Bears spelt B-A-R-E-S, um, at Nailbridge. And that's all he says, really. And then he goes on to say, We bought two pigs from George Wilkes about the 15th of the month for £2. He was fined for killing the bears, £26. His, and that's illegible, but it might be brother, I'm not sure, Wilkes, fined £6. Others... 20, uh, others, it's a bit illegible, sorry, hard to read, £6. Some have gone to prison rather than paying the fine. Is that it? That's it. That's, <laughs> That's it. it. Right, OK. Part of the reason why it's a brief entry, maybe, is that when you, when you look over his diaries, you're very conscious how many accidents and deaths there are compared to life nowadays. Like, if one of our friends was to have, to have an accident or die, it would be just major it doesn't happen very much but it's quite sad to read his diary because he 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 writes quite frequently about oh so and so died today or or oh there was a mining accident or there was a rock fall or uh all these illnesses of course lots of deaths from illnesses as well so perhaps in the perspective of his life with the weather and mining and gardening and walking to work and um Travelling bears is quite a to us it's a major event, but and I'm sure it the fact that he mentions it is obviously was an event back then, but maybe not such a, a massive event as we we might think it was. So at the time, for Thomas Hale, the killing of the bears was maybe not such an important event. However, what took place that day in 1889, unfortunately, quickly became a topic of some interest to people outside of the Forest of Dean. We know that there was huge sensitivity about the French general, and here's why. Let's go back to that newspaper article in the Cheltenham Chronicle in May 1889 and have a look at what more it had to say and why. It would be well if Mr G.B. Samuelson, when he next visits his constituents, would substitute a few speeches on the cultivation of home manners in place of his orations on home rule. Sir Charles Dilk might also improve the occasion in his addresses to the denizens of the forest during the next few days. He might, if he knows how, show then that they ought to govern their lawless passions before they exercise their right to assist in the government of the country. So here we have it. This is straightforward political shenanigans. And the reason why this story was so bigged up outside the forest, the savages of the forest had given an excuse for first-class mudslinging. Remember Colchester Wames, head verderer, justice of the peace and chairman of the county council, who was so kind to the Frenchman, restoring Britain's honour? Well, he was an arch-conservative and landowner set up to go up against the Liberals in the forest election of 1892. The Conservatives, and this was a very conservative newspaper, were furious that Charles Dilke had led the Third Reform Act through Parliament in 1884, giving the vote to people like agricultural labourers. And this threatened conservative dominance of rural seats 
and redistributed seats away from the urban gentry. Samuelson also mentioned was the current Liberal MP for the Forest and he had committed the sin of being a strong supporter of Home Rule. Thomas Hale, in seeing the bear killings as not worth much of a mention in his diary, was right. In the scheme of everyday events, the bear killings weren't such a big deal. Yes, in the scheme of things happening at the time, the bear killings were nothing. In fact, they didn't matter at all. It was beating up Frenchmen and causing national embarrassment that mattered because it was useful to demonstrate that foresters weren't fit to have the vote. Colchester Wames, set to be the Conservative candidate at the next election and chairman of the magistrate bench, had restored the honour of England by making sure the miscreants were punished. He indicated he wouldn't try them himself as it would not have been a fair trial as he had already publicly condemned the accused in newspaper articles. The Tory press in Cheltenham and Gloucester let the story run and run because it was gold to them. In wider Gloucestershire, this wasn't a story about who was responsible, Cinderford or Ruardine. Instead, it was a story of why rural people, and particularly the uncivilised foresters, weren't fit to have the vote. And it was an opportunity to take a swipe at the ineptitude of their Liberal MP, Roger? Yes. As a postscript, we should note that Charles Dilk went on to stand for the Liberals in the 1892 general election for the Forest of Dean seat, and he whipped Colchester Waves by 5,360 votes to 2,942 votes. So that's some majority, but that seems a very small number of votes for a whole parliamentary constituency. Yes, the franchise still hadn't extended that far. And of course, these were only men voting. As far as politics were concerned then, women didn't count. And that could also be a reason why women reported to be in the mob weren't prosecuted. How do you mean, Roger? It's the men in the story who had been given the vote and through their actions, they were demonstrating they weren't fit to have it. Women were marginal because they still hadn't been given the vote and wouldn't get it until 1918. Regarding the wider bear story, despite the eventual outcome, the damage was done. The bears were here to stay. The story of the killing of the bears affirmed a view for those outside the forest that foresters, and particularly the men, were a wild and barbarous people. With the shame felt about what happened all those years ago, no surprise perhaps that in the Forest of Dean so much of the attention has focused on the legendary sensitivities of Ruardine to the question of who killed the bears, rather than dwelling on the actual events themselves in 1889. In 1968 all of that was to change and it would once again bring those original events to the attention of a national audience. Part 4 them bears. Oh, and who on earth is Six-Fingered Jack? A fully grown Russian bear, Gina, is being brought to the Forest of Dean next week for the filming of a play written by Mr Dennis Potter. Those were the opening lines of a piece in the Dean Forest Mercury newspaper on the 1st of March 1968. The headline was Dennis Potter writes some new lines on the bear story. The bears were back, and a Russian one no less. The play for BBC television was to be a beast with two backs, and much of it was filmed on location in the Forest of Dean. Unsurprisingly, with news of the subject matter of the forthcoming production, controversy erupted in the newspaper letters pages even before filming began. The plot of A Beast with Two Backs was inspired by the story of the bears that Dennis Potter had heard growing up. His play adapts the story as a means to explore what would become familiar Potter themes, sex and morality, religion, fear of the other, manipulation and mob mentality. In A Beast With Two Backs there is one bear, and the four Frenchmen are replaced by one Italian, 
Joe. Dennis Potter had been born at Berry Hill near Coford in the Forest of Dean. As a young man, he'd moved away to complete his education at Oxford University. By the mid-1960s, he'd begun to make his name as a television dramatist. And in 1968, he'd just moved back to the area, to a house in nearby Ross-on-Wye. Potter was a controversial figure locally, prompted in part by his 1960 documentary about the forest called Between Two Rivers. Some people had been upset by what they perceived as a programme that criticised the forest. However, there were also local people who recognised Potter as an intelligent and original writer who cared deeply about where he came from. In 1968, filming began for A Beast With Two Backs and there was a heated exchange of letters in the local Forrester Dean newspaper and it went on for several weeks, resuming again after it was broadcast. The local headline for their coverage one week was simply Them Bears. Now I'm a huge fan of Dennis Potter and his work and when I first came across all of this in the local newspaper archive I felt very snooty about those local people who'd written in to criticise the play. I have to admit though, looking back on it now, some of the criticism was precisely because people felt that Potter's play had once again presented the forest as a dark and uncivilised place and foresters as savage. Well, stories have a purpose, as we discussed in the newspapers of 1889, and we might say that Dennis Potter put the bears to use to exercise some of his own inner demons. He clearly loved the forest and its people, but his adaptation of the story, including sexing it up, gave him a chance to have a go at small-mindedness, the hypocrisy of some of the chapel preaching and the power of the mob. And though this upset some people in the forest, memorably a whole family wrote in to the Dean Forest Mercury newspaper to complain, there were some who wrote in supporting Potter and his play. And amongst them are some familiar names. Remember Ken Sollers and his poem? In 1968, Ken wrote to the newspaper Defending Potter. Writing in to provide some historical background on the bear story was none other than Ruardine resident Andrew Gardner, who we heard from earlier. Poet and regular newspaper correspondent Harry Beddington wrote a typically witty and thoughtful piece on reaction to the play he'd overheard on the street in Cinderford. And there was a poetic response to the play too, from a lady who would, in the years that followed, become an established part of the forest literary scene herself. So here is that poem. It's called The Bear Facts and was written by Joyce Latham. And we're very pleased to say it's read here by none other than Joyce's daughter, Sally. Oh, what a wondrous sight to see, the forest on our own TV, complete with scenery so rare, and that ill-fated bear. The drama, too, of murder foul, lamented by a sleepless owl, and poor bewildered Rufus, who could never tell the things he knew, man's thoughtless pointless cruelty was here portrayed for all to see, and though the story we have known by Dennis Potter's pen has grown, into a tale of hurt and hate, entwined around poor Gina's fate. There's still one question in the air. Do tell me, please, who killed the bear? A lovely poem and reading that leads us back to that rhetorical question, who killed the bears? Now, Roger, there's one name that we've got in our title that we've not really tackled yet. Who was it who first used that question, who killed the bears? Well... We don't actually know when that taunt was first cried, but we do know the earliest record of it being used to cause a fight. In August 1890, just over a year after the incident happened, a man with the remarkable name of Six Finger Jack, an itinerant 70-year-old black American who'd been a slave, raised it in a Cinderford pub and caused a fight. The newspaper report points out that that was just to get a bed for the night, guaranteed by a sentence of seven nights in jail. So the story of the bears has been put to many uses since Six-Fingered Jack hurled that taunt across a pub as a guarantee of a comfortable night. Yes, by people looking for a brawl and authors looking for a story to embellish. 
Though a beast with two backs wasn't an historically accurate retelling of what actually happened on that day in 1889, broadcast in a prime time slot on national television, it was yet another contribution to keeping the story of the killing of the bears alive, interpreting it for a new audience. And let's face it, it's a great story. And as Potter himself wrote in The Singing Detective, you just don't know writers. They'll use anything, anybody. They'll eat their young. The Reading the Forest podcast. The stories behind the stories. This is a really good example, isn't it, Roger, of how stories get used and recycled and put to different purposes. And it got to be honest, most often, although sometimes for comic effect, this story is one of those that is used to, you know, paint the forest and foresters is um, quite dark and dangerous. Well, Jason, I think the other thing it shows us is even within a county like Gloucestershire, where we've got a lot of similarities, um, there are differences. And it reminds me of when they were thinking about reorganising the parliamentary constituencies and they talked about extending the Forest of Dean into Gloucester. And there was a very, very, very strong response to that along the lines of, we're different to them. Now, what that meant, I don't know, but it was a very, very quick response. And what that showed was these communities regarded themselves as quite distinct. Gloucestershire may be, but very different parts of Gloucestershire. That's the story of the killing of the bears. Now, there are lots of other examples of the use of that story. And if you would like to find out about some of those, you can check out our website or you can ask us. You can get in touch with us via the website, readingtheforest.co.uk. We would love to hear from you. So, Jason, what story are we going to tackle in the next episode? Well, we're going to be looking at several stories. We're going to be looking at ghost stories in the Forest of Dean. And we're going to be finding out they're not always quite what they seem. I'm Dr Roger Deeks. And I'm Dr Jason Griffiths. And this has been the Reading the Forest podcast, the stories behind the stories. The Reading the Forest podcast was a Reading the Forest production for Forester's Forest. The presenters were Jason Griffiths and Roger Deeks. You also heard from Nicola Wynne, and Andrew Gardner. Thanks also to Neil Jones, Sally Latham, the late Ken Sollers, and the F.W. Harvey estate. This episode also featured the voices of Jeremy Gazzard, Sarah McMullen-Morris, Barney Rowe, and Rachel Griffiths. This podcast was made possible through the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the University of Gloucestershire. <laughs>